Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. There we go. Uh, so glad you're with us in our study in the book of 1 John. So if you have a copy in the scriptures of the scriptures, you can turn your way. If it's digital, you can tap your way. That's totally cool with us. To 1 John, a letter written by one of Jesus' disciples named... John, good job, you figured it out. Uh, and it's a, it's a helpful letter for a lot of reasons. He wrote these things to Christians living in a world that was pretty hard, and honestly a world that, though 2,000 years different in uh, timeline, is actually incredibly similar to our own. And so as John writes, a lot of it feels really present. It feels very appropriate. And honestly, I'm telling you, it's very necessary. So, so I want you to be following along with us as we read today. We're going to be in 1 John. We're going to start in 2, verse 26 and 27, and then we're going to kind of jump back up to where we finished off last week. And I want to just sort of talk about the next thing in John. And, and he's been talking about some stuff that's been scary, but not scary like we're going to talk about this week. So I don't know. How often do you do this? This happened to us last night. We got all the way down. We're in bed. It's like night, fans on, lights are off. You're finally like almost down. And then once your mind gets quiet, like all the scary stuff can like jump back out at you. <laughs> and then you just start thinking about what's possible. And then you have to get back out of bed and like make sure all the doors are locked. Uh, gosh, I hate that. And we just did a series on anxiety and fear. And all that was, that whole series was about taking some of the things that you're afraid of and, and putting them out on a, kind of on a whiteboard mentally and saying, okay, how does the Lord or the presence of the Lord impact these fears? Well, yeah, I want to I lock the doors and make sure they're locked, but I also want to trust the Lord in those fears. And, and that anxiety series, I think, is helpful. You can still find that online. But there's also things in scripture that make it clear that you should lock your doors, that this world isn't just like fun and easy and we're just jumpy because we're jumpy. Like there are things to be jumpy about. There are things to be jumpy about that you can see and things to be jumpy about that you can't see. There are, there are things that are out there, but there are things that are in here that should make you jumpy. What we're going to talk about today is while it's, it's possible to trust the Lord and it's possible to be saved and it's possible to live with radical peace and hope. I don't know if you noticed like the themes that we sing here. We sing them a lot because we want you to remember. We want you to, to keep thinking about. I mean, the, I think about the phrase, I've never read any Shakespeare. God help me. I, I don't know if you do that and that's what all smart people do or something. But I've got several degrees and I've never read a word. But he has this phrase like the lady doth protest too much. Have you heard that phrase before? It's the idea that, like, if you keep saying no, people are like, oh, wait a minute, you're definitely not telling the truth. Like, you, you, you think, oh, no, I don't want another hamburger. Seriously, please don't give me another hamburger. I'll not have another hamburger. And you're like, okay, this guy really wants another hamburger. Are you trying to convince me or yourself that you don't need another? So it's that same kind of thing when we think about hope. When we talk about hope, and it's hope for the morning, and hope for the evening, and hope when I'm living, and hope when I'm dying, and hope for tomorrow, and hope for yesterday, and it's like... Do you say that because you're really hopeful or because you're hoping that you'll be hopeful one day? Like, are you trusting these things to be true? Well, that's what I want us to think about today. I want us to think about the stuff on the inside that can slip you up, that can mess you up. We're not walking in a way that's just assured. Yes, there is assurance and, and there is an unshakable confidence that's possible in the gospel. 
but it's not uncontested. John says in John chapter 2, verses 26 and 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him, it abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it, is, it, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, this is a very John way of writing. The stuff that he's saying there, he says in lots of places, and he's going to continue to say. And if you really get verse by verse with us throughout this series, there's going to be a lot of repetition. And you might even see a lot of repetition from the teaching. But it's because what John is saying is the same thing, but he's saying it in a way that shows you a little something different about it. It's, it's a study of a beauty that goes way deeper than just a, a surface reading. And so he uses similar terms, and he uses them repeatedly, and he pairs them with other terms that he uses and uses repeatedly so that you begin to form these ideas that become dynamic and interact with each other and become useful for you in interpreting the world that you see around you. And what he begins with in these verses is that there are those that are trying to deceive you. That your faith is not a settled and uncontested thing. So, so, so what he's saying is that there's an enemy. What he's giving is an option that you can abide in him, you can trust in his anointing, meaning when he gives you the Holy Spirit, when you become a Christian, you become his, when you receive the gospel, that one thing that is the hope, that one message that's really the only message we ever preach here at Hope Church because it's the one message that scripture has for us to know, that one anointing, you can abide in him or you can be deceived. Look at what he says if you go back. So let's go back to where we ended last week. We'll go to verse 15 of John chapter 2. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And if the world is passing away, I'm sorry, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Okay, so again, he's talking about something that's a little bit scary here. He's talking about an either or and the possibility that you would believe in something or choose something that is passing away, that is the opposite of what God is or what God has for you. He's talking about something that can kill you. And how does he talk about it? Well, he starts to use this phrase. He talks about the world. Now, what does that mean? And, and this is where I want us to do a little bit of good Bible reading together. When John says the world, he uses that term and he uses it several times and he uses it in other times in his writing. And so how does somebody figure out when they're reading the Bible what it says? Sometimes we get that question of like, isn't the Bible sort of like a Hallmark card and you just read it and it makes you feel good and you just make it mean whatever you want and nobody cares? Or... Is there a settled meaning to the text? Something that we can figure out almost scientifically. Get to a place where we can say, no, it's not really a question. That's what John meant when he said this. Well, I, I think so. That study, that kind of careful reading is something that we're all about at Hope Church, and it's why we're constantly encouraging you to read along, to have scriptures of your own, to be checking this stuff out through the week, to be thinking about it together. 
When he says world, if you read all the different places where John talks about the world, the, the Greek for this is just cosmos, where we get cosmic. And you think, oh man, if I knew the Greek, maybe I would be able to figure out where he's using what word. But, but no, actually, he says cosmos in three different ways. In the world, the word cosmos is translated as the word world in each of those places. So they do a really good job translating it. And you can do the same level of legwork in English as you would do in Greek. You just take the word world and you start trying to say, where does he talk about world and what could he mean by it? Well, the idea of the world could just be the created universe. And what the created universe is, is not what he's talking about here because he's talking about not loving the things in the world and how the world is going to be a thing that can kill you, that that has desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes and pride of life. So when he talks about the world, he could be talking about the created universe, but I don't think so. Christians have always believed that the world is a good thing. You go to the very beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They, they came from him. And in that creation narrative of, of Genesis 1 and again, when it kind of repeats that creation narrative, God constantly looks at what he has made and says over and again, it's good. There's not a problem with the world that he made. He made it, and because he's a good maker, what he made was, was good. It even says at the end, it says in, in Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. He looked at everything he had made and said it was very good. This is kind of important historically, but it's definitely important today as well. Christians are not anti-body. We're not anti-matter. We're not anti-physical. That idea of being like a Platonist or whatever, the idea that you would see things beyond, like, like your spirit is good, but your body is gross. And so we hate body. We hate the physical. We don't care about the world. Well, no. What God made fell. What God made broke, but what he made was good. And we should care for it and love it. That's another sermon. But world could mean created world, but that's not what he's talking about here. John uses world in another way. He talks about the world of human persons. There's a really famous verse that John also penned called John 3.16, where he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Well, this, this, when he says world here, he's using it to mean the world of human persons, not just the created universe, but, but the, the created, the special creation of, of humanity. And what he says here is that he loves the world. So John probably doesn't mean the same thing here and in John 3.16, because in John 2 he says, don't love the world. And here he says that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for it. Okay. Well, there's probably a different use of the word world here. In John 3.16, he's talking about humanity. And when God looks at humanity, he sees things that he loves. God does love you. He sees things wrong with you because he sees you. God's the only one who can actually see a thing as it is. He's outside time. He's the creator. He knows all and he can see you in perfect relation to himself and all of other creation. He's the only one that can really see you. And seeing you, he loves you. 
That's one of my favorite verses. Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler and it's, he, he, he's beating up this guy a little bit because the guy comes at him really proud about how he's kept all the God's commands. And Jesus is ready to just lay this like difficult moment on this guy. And there's a way where you feel like Jesus is just coming in with a, like a haymaker because this guy's so proud. But it says in Mark that he sees him and he loves him. And so then he says, go sell all that you have, give to the poor and come be my disciple. Oh man, the hard stuff comes because he sees you and he loves you. When he's talking about the world here, he's talking about people that he sees and he loves. When you think about the fact that God reveals himself as father, you think about the fact that God is the creator. Not our father in a literal sense. You have one of those probably. I don't know. I don't know. The kind of new scientific age. Maybe you're from a test tube or something. But in general, people have physical fathers. And okay, great. But, but what that is pointing to is a greater reality. The, the thing that God is trying to show us about his relationship with us. When he sees us, he sees all of our brokenness. But he also sees the full potential of our repentance. The full picture of our restoration in Christ. When he sees you, he knows what Adam looked like before the fall. He knows what a full image bearer looked like in all of its reflected glory. When he sees you, he sees the full range of who you are, and he loves you as an image bearer. He loves you as one who is projecting back himself, his son, and his spirit. Just recently, Apple TV had a thing, and maybe you guys knew this and I didn't, whatever, but it was an update and it's, you, you got to go through the thing and it tells you all the things that are new and you just want to get past it. But one of the things that were new in the update was that you can connect it to your pictures and so your pictures go through on the screensaver. Instead of a drone shot, it's pictures. Well, that's just totally changed our world because this big TV in the middle of our uh, living room when we're eating or whatever, it'll just start showing pictures of us on these vacations or whatever. And as a dad, my oldest is 11, and I've watched our girls grow. And when you see them and they're little, you see the little face and you know that this, that's this baby, not that baby, because as they continue to grow, the, there's features about that baby that's, that start to sort of articulate as they get older. And so you see in that child, as the parent who has lovingly stared at that child for a decade, you see all the different versions of that child all at the same time. And when they're a baby, like they don't even look like anything. They're just fat, right? You know, they're just a round, pudgy, lovely thing. But as they get older, some of the stuff starts to get more specific. And then you look back and you go, oh, that's definitely Caroline. That's not Grace. God, that is definitely not Catherine. That, that is Grace. Like you can tell who's who. Why? Because you've seen them. And when you look at that child, you see yourself. You see your wife. What is this thing that you're looking at? Oh my gosh, your heart overwhelms itself with love. There's times where emotion gets so heavy that things get so much that it's like you get a whine sort of sound going in your ear and you just realize my brain is not computing any longer. We've, we've tapped out. You know, the system has, has got the little spinning circle because there's just too much going on. When God looks at you as image bearer, as creation fallen, as creation loved, as creation redeemed, 
and he sees you in the full glory of what you will be one day. I mean, what, what do you think he feels when he looks at you? Oh, God so loved the world. Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So then, what does he mean when he says, don't love the world or the things in the world? If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. It's got to mean something, and it can't mean the created universe because God made that good. It fell, but he cares enough to redeem it. And all the pictures we have of redeemed creation, all the pictures we have of heaven are physical pictures. So we're not anti-matter. And then he can't mean all of humanity because he loves humanity. He loved them so much that he sent his son to die for humanity. So it can't mean all of humanity. What does world mean? Well, Danny Aiken, commentator, uh, president of the seminary I went to just recently, says that this, this world here means the evil, organized, earthly system controlled by the power of the evil one that has aligned itself against God and his kingdom. What? <laughs> it's up there. I don't know if you're reading it with me. What? That sounds crazy. Unless you read the Bible. Because in the Bible, it's very clear that there is God and there is an enemy. They're not co-equal. It's not a dualism where you have both of them fighting each other and one's always existed and the other's always existed and the kind of force has to balance or whatever. No. The, the evil one was an angel, created being who fell, rebelled, cast out. And now works against God and his creation. It's one more tick in the like evidence box of does God love us that the enemy decided to go after us. Well, why? Because you want to go after the one thing that this guy, this thing loves. You can't attack heaven. So what do you do? Well, you attack its works. The Lord sees us and he loves us. The enemy knows that. And so he's the one that goes and tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. He's the one now that this world has fallen who is continuing to produce, to con continuing to orchestrate these forces that are pulling us away, the, the temptations that we're so given to with our fallen nature. Anything that you want to come to as an interpretation of Scripture is going to also balance out by reading other parts of Scripture. If this idea of world is right, then we would see something similar in other places and other authors throughout the New Testament. And we do. Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, the ones in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, what are they saying? What's the Holy Spirit? What's Paul and John? What are they saying to us? They're saying that there is a world order. There is a conspiracy. It's not lizard people or Anthony Fauci. There, there's, a, there's a leader who's beyond all, who's clever, who doesn't sleep, who is orchestrating, and you can come at me later about Anthony Fauci. That's cool. 
I thought it'd be fun to say it. And then I realized as I was saying it, like some people are going to get real wide-eyed when they tell me about how that's not really a conspiracy theory. It's just the truth and, and whatever. Let's do it. You know, I love you. I love you. I love you and you love me. And I'm like, what? whatever. But what I'm saying is there, there is a conspiracy. There is something that's anti and guided. There is something that's organized and destructive. And, and John tells us about it. He tells us about what it is that we might identify and then avoid, avoid it. Look what he says in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is he saying? He's saying that, that the world isn't just a place. It's like a message that the enemy doesn't just content himself to like whisper in your ear. The, the enemy has like a sermon that's being preached. And we'll talk about it in just a second with preachers. But he's got a message that's being spoken. And it's got these appeals. It's got these hooks in it that drag you toward it. And often, if you're honest with yourself, you're not that difficult to tempt. But, but look at the three things that he says here. It's not a comprehensive list, but it's a couple of the things that are being preached as the, the enemy continues to make his appeals. It says the desires of the flesh. What we mean by that, it, it's, it's any time, and flesh is another really rich word for you to kind of study scripture and see how it's talked about in different places. But the desires of the flesh, when we, when we seek some desire in a way or at a time or in a degree, a measure that God has forbidden. Desires of the flesh, you think about food, drink, and sex. Good things. But God has prescribed when? With whom? I mean, that frequency may be a little less prescribed when it comes to sex, I guess, but, but there are things that God has bounded with these good gifts because they're meant to preach something to us. And the enemy takes those messages and he starts twisting them. Did God really say? Man, I wish we could, we, there's just so much more we could talk about it. Maybe in the context of this series, we'll be able to dig more into it. But the idea of a liturgy, the idea of a poem made enacted, uh, uh, the idea that, that, that creation is preaching to you as you breathe in, as you take a bite, as you kiss. And the enemy wants to take each of those experiences and corrupt them. So instead of attuning you more fully to God and the loves that he has for you, they, they break you more fully and incite in you these desires that are going to drag you further and further away from the Lord. Your body's connected to your soul. Creation's good. It was always intended to be that way. It's so frustrating. But we talked about anxiety and you're like, yeah, anxiety, Maybe, you know, maybe there's going to be some like prayer I'll pray or thing I'll think and all of a sudden my anxiety goes away. And then you realize that honestly, you know, diet and exercise goes further than a lot of stuff in helping you with anxiety. And you're like, no, you know, because that would be wonderful if it wasn't the case. But, you know, it is. And so then you start realizing like if I care for my body well, it's going to help my soul to be a little bit better. Okay, it's connected. The enemy knows that and he uses the desires of the flesh, the desires of your body to to twist, to turn, to, to tempt you into doing things that God has given in ways at, at times or in measures that God has forbidden. He talks about the desire of the eyes. Oh my gosh. Has there ever been a time in history where this has been more effective? 
where there's been more money or more intelligence poured into the things that are constantly in your eyes, showing you what you could have for for a price, what you could have. Right? Like we think about the algorithms that are out there and the brilliance that's behind them. We think about the things that are building on themselves and just creating this new world where, you know, we talk to each other and we say something about, you know, I don't know, maybe we should put a wreath on the door this year. I don't know. It's a little tacky, you know, but it's festive. You know, we had just a little conversation while we're grinding our coffee beans and then you get an ad. (laughs) For, you know, wreaths that are not that tacky, but very festive, you know, or whatever. Like they've perfectly tuned in that ad. Curated. Exceptionally well. To tickle the desire of your your eyes. Envy. Do you think about envy? Do you repent of envy? It's in the Ten Commandments. Paul talked about envy. I don't know that Paul struggled with much. He talks about envy in his writing. Oh, God help us. The pride of life. The last thing he's, he's saying here is this idea that you would look on, on your world, on, on your kingdom, on what you have made, and you would congratulate yourself in some way. You look in the mirror, you look in the driveway, you look at your house, you look at your bank account, you look at something and go, yes. Or more likely, the opposite. Because there's winners and losers on this, but the losers are tempted in the same way as the winners, and they look at their life and they go, oh, if only. And they spend themselves to try and build the thing that the proud people have, but realize as proud people that it's not helping either. And the enemy spends that lie for us all the time where we look to the things that we have, the things that we've done, the things that we want. And he preaches this message. But look what John says about this message. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father. Instead, it's from that world, that evil organization. And the world is passing away. Don't build anything there. Don't put your life there because it's passing away with all those beautiful desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He just said two things that are critical to arguing against those temptations. One is that it's contrary to the Father. It's not what the Father has for you. He has come that you might have life. The enemy has come that you might eat death. That's what Jesus said, John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life. What what kind of life? Eke it out life? Just a life, abundant life. Ooh, abundant. Like, that's another one. Go live in that word this week. You know, find it in scripture and scrunch it up. Like, enjoy that abundant is promised. He doesn't just give life. So why would we go down that road? It's, it's contrary to the one who is giving us life. It's, it's in the step of the one who wants to bring you death. And it won't last. Paul, as he's preaching in Athens, so the center of, of you know, wisdom and philosophy in the ancient world, and he's, he's preaching the gospel in Athens, and he says, the times of ignorance God's overlooked. But now he commands all people, everywhere, to repent because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man that he has appointed. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Yeah. Repent. This world is passing away. You think it's not because it keeps going. But it keeps going that that God in his mercy might give you an opportunity to repent. I'm thankful it lasted past 85. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So, you know, I'm glad for that. I feel like people always think that. It's like, oh, why are you tarrying so long, oh Lord? It's like, well, I'm glad he tarried at least, you know, 1,985 years later because otherwise, you know, no me. But I'm glad I'm alive and I can enjoy his creational world. But there is going to be a day at which he wraps this stuff up. The one who came as a lamb will come as a lion. And what are we going to do about that? How do we live now in light of that? Well, we have to reject that dangerous message that is deadly and delicious that the world is preaching and wants to destroy you with. And it is being preached to you. Look what it says in 18 to 23. We're going to move quick. Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. But they were not of us, for they had been of us. They, wouldn't have con- they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. There were people that were part of the church that left. And as they left, they began to preach something different. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. This is what he's talking about. These are ways of describing what it is to be saved, what it is to receive the Holy Spirit, receive the gospel. You've been anointed by the Holy One. You have all knowledge doesn't mean you know everything. We don't know much at all. But you do know the one thing. And I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it. (laughs) He's writing to the Christians. He's writing because you do know the truth and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. I'm sorry. No one who denies the Son has the Father. For whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He's saying the enemy has preachers. Now, all men are wicked, and I'm a man, so I'm wicked too. So even your preachers are wicked preachers. But there's not just wicked preachers. There are preachers who preach a wicked message. By God's grace, I preach to you the words of Christ. I preach to you the words of Christians for 2,000 years. As soon as I don't, I thank God that there are men in this assembly that would come up to me afterward and say, what? Look. What? And I'm telling you to go read your scripture so that you can come up to me later and go, what? And I can go, no, 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 and explain it to you. But some of you, you'll say, what? And I'll go, ha, ah! you know, and we'll have to preach a retraction message or something. By God's grace, I'm preaching to you scripture. But there are preachers that preach what is anti-scripture. What is anti-gospel? Oh, we're out of time. There's so much more to think about here. And thank God that John's repetitive so we can keep coming back to this. But, but there are preachers that are preaching And they're dangerous because their message is deadly. And they're dangerous, especially if you're not trying to stop it. If the the gates into your brain, into your heart are wide open, how hard is it to censor the, the content that your children get to? It's scary, isn't it? You think about phones, you think about iPads, you think about the schools handing them laptops. Oh my gosh, it's terrifying. You think about trying to curate the content that they're going to get and try to protect their tiny little hearts from this wicked, awful world. Okay, what are you doing to protect yourself? Oh, it's way harder if you don't even try. 
Are you stopping yourself from receiving things that preach to you anti-gospels? I had a seminary professor who said that pornography was not a temptation for him, but the one thing that really got him was a movie, and I think it was with Alan Alda, but it was called Same Time Next Year. He was an older man. It's an older movie. But it was a movie that he saw called Same Time Next Year. And in the movie, there was a couple that would get together in some place once a year and commit adultery with each other, and then they'd go back to their spouses for the rest of the year. And same time next year, they would meet up again. Why was that dangerous? Didn't have any nudity. Didn't have any gratuitous kind of sexually explicit message or or behavior. What it had was a sexually explicit message. And what it did was communicate that message in a really attractive way. No, I don't know that that guy had like a fling in, in Europe that he would go visit every year, but that professor was saying that that movie was way more dangerous to him than explicit pornography. Why? Because it had appeal. What desires the flesh? What desires of your eyes? What pride of life? Are you just letting right past the goalie? John said you can't do that. What you do instead is twenty four twenty five. You let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you're going to abide too in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us. Eternal, not passing away, eternal life, not death, life. Do you see the promise that he's making? And he just says abide in it. So little one, what do you do? Will you abide in the word? What does it take to say, well, what world does he mean here? Because I think John 3.16 has world used in a different way. It doesn't take brilliance. It takes time. You just be the kind of person who rubs your face against the Bible on a daily basis and let that thing start getting in you and start to master you, change you. It takes time. So spend some time in the Word. Read. Go to community groups. Come back on Sundays. Listen to these sermons. They're meant to appeal to you, not to be the sum total of your scripture intake, but to appeal to you. Listen to good godly music, the best songs they sing. It's just, you just scratch a little bit and you realize that they're tapping into the Psalms, they're tapping into the epistles, they're, see, they're singing scripture to you. You want to abide in him, pray to him regularly. You don't know how to do that? Great! Just memorize a little bit of scripture on it. Psalm 23 is six verses. It's not going to take much. I promise you can get it. Six verses, Psalm 23. Just put it in your head, hide it in your heart. You don't know what to pray? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me light it. And you just, whoosh. what is the Lord's prayer? It's like two verses. Maybe it's three or four because it's dense. So they tried to, but word wise, it's not that long. You can memorize the Lord. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you don't pray it just wrote. Golly, we played against a Catholic school in, college, in high school basketball. And then it's afterward and they, you know, chant the Lord's Supper. Well, God bless them. They know it. I don't know that any of them were praying. I learned, I listened to what they were saying to me, you know, and we're blocking out and they're cursing me like crazy and then they're chanting the Lord's Prayer afterward. Whatever. But I'm just saying, at least they know it. And it doesn't have to be a chant. That's so judgmental. Those guys are probably great. I'm sorry. (laughs) But if you actually memorize that thing and pray that thing phrase by phrase, oh, bless you. You can abide in him. Journal it out. Learn with friends and family how to pray. Go to a good church. Good church doesn't mean good people. The people are terrible. But good church means good theology. People that abide, that love. You can find somebody ahead of you that can say, no, 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 not that, this. Mm, Enjoy. Man, you you should care about whether or not our sermons preach Bible. You You should read theology. 
Now, you've got to read it missionally. You've got to read it so that you can share the gospel with the world. You can't just read it to puff yourself up. God help us if we do that. Oh, man, buy a book. Read. <laughs> I'd love to suggest something for you. And just, just turn from death to life, Christian. Stop loving the world. Take a break from the world. You can't go to a monastery, but you can do monastery-ish things. Just put your, put your phone away. Five o'clock, you know, you're done with work. Just make up for a week from five o'clock until the next morning. You don't touch your phone. Ooh, panic attack, right? But try it. Go off social media for like a month. You can even really posture yourself as this really godly person by posting on all your social media about how you're not going to post for a whole month and everybody's going to be so impressed. Sure, I don't know. Just give it a rest. Take a moment to just rise up out of the world for just a second and just see what happens. And if you're just looking into Christianity, do you understand that what we're talking about is like got high stakes? We are talking about heaven and hell. Like we believe in those as real places. We are talking about a judgment. We're not enlightened enough to get past that. We're not enlightened enough to look past scripture. Do you know that you know him? Do you, do you eat life instead of death? What we're gonna do now is take the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Supper, are, it's, it's only for people that have put all of their faith and all of their trust in Christ alone for salvation. If you've done that, you should be baptized. So we ask you not to take the Lord's Supper if you're not a believer. And if you are a believer who hasn't been baptized, what are you doing? Don't take the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about baptism. I'm not going anywhere. I mean, we, we run off to this Just Christianity class, but I'm, I'm easy to reach. I got not a lot going on in the week. I would love to talk to you more about baptism. But if you are a believer, you've been baptized. You, you, you've said yes to Jesus. Then what we're going to do in just a moment is take the Lord's Supper. And it's a, a picture of eating life instead of death. When Jesus says that he is not just the way and the life, he also says that he's the bread of life. And he gives you this as a way to remember the sacrifice he's made on your behalf. So what I'm gonna do is pray. When I say amen, the band's gonna play. I want you to take a moment to examine your heart. When you're ready, come get the elements, sit down, and we'll take them together. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us grace for a long sermon, that you would give us grace as we go to take your supper. And that you would give us grace to tell the difference between death and life, Lord. That we would become a people, that we would grow as a people who say no to things that are worldly and yes to abiding in you. Don't let us be worldly Christians, Father, and I fear that we are. But instead, please help your people to grow. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.